I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. You'll find it on page 402 or 403. It's 403, Nehemiah 8. Kids in the room, you realize that it's August, right? And do you know what August means? What does it mean? You're going back to school. Yes. I know. You probably know that going back to school, though, often involves back-to-school shopping. So you might need new supplies. You might need a new backpack. You might need new clothes. Now, that made me think... Has anybody here ever thought about the story of clothing? All the way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve, the first people, didn't wear clothes. They were naked. But unlike the show, they were not afraid. They reject God's command. And now they see the shame of their nakedness. And so what happens? They cover themselves up with leaves. And then in steps God, who has mercy. God covers them with animal skins. And so we see that the blood of another covers the shame that people caused. It's a little bit of preview of how God would ultimately address that problem. But I wonder, as others have, does that mean clothes are fundamentally bad? Others have wondered this also. You know, babies, babies aren't ashamed to be naked. But we still take them out in public and think we should put clothes on them. Kings wear royal robes throughout Scripture. Figures like Joseph and Daniel were honored with clothes. And consider the end of the story. That is the end of the whole story. God's people will stand before him and wear white robes, purified by the blood of Christ. And so it gives us an insight that the ideal for humanity is, not, is to be clothed, not to be naked. And this makes the story of Adam and Eve all the more tragic. One theologian named William Wilder, he observes this, that the Hebrew word for light sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for animal skin. So it could give a hint that God intended to clothe Adam and Eve in light, but they settled to be clothed in animal skins. They desired to be wise in themselves, and desiring to be wise, they became fools. They missed out on the best life that God intended for them, a life under his rule and his word. Bring that up because Nehemiah 8 is one of many glimmers of hope. People in Nehemiah 8 begin to live under God's rule, which leads to their greatest joy. They begin to live the way that God intended them to live. Nehemiah 8 is evidence that God will one day complete the work to give us the clothes he meant for us to wear. The main idea from this chapter, life under the word of God is the joyous life God intends for us. Life under the word of God is the joyous life that God intends for us. We'll see that unfold in Nehemiah 8 in three stages. The people long for the word, the people rejoice in the word, and the people obey the word. Let's start with just the first eight verses, the people, where we see the people long for the word. Or you can follow along as I read. 
and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Keladah, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. This is the word of the Lord. So we say first here that the people longed for the word. And what did their longing for the word look like? Well, from the start, it looks like a longing that they made their own. See here at the very beginning of the first two verses. Nobody made them listen to the Bible. Nobody dragged them to church. They wanted this for themselves. The first two verses tell us that the people came together and asked Ezra, Ezra, come bring your Bible and teach us. You know, this would be like kids asking their parents to change up their nightly routine. Maybe you can imagine this. Your kids conspiring together one day and they start whispering, formulating their plan, and then they finalize it and submit it to mom and dad. They say, mom and dad, listen, we've been thinking. Maybe you could change up our nightly routine. You know, maybe tonight, instead of like we've used to, can you give us a nutritionally balanced dinner? And then after that, mom and dad, could you read us a book of the Bible where we will sit quietly and listen? And then finally, can you help us brush our teeth and wash our face and get us to bed at a decent time so we can get enough sleep? Now, if you heard that from your kids, you would be floored. Your jaws would drop. And it's almost the same here. I mean, the Bible's documented over and over again Israel's bad pattern of behavior. And so this action in Nehemiah 8 is stunning. Not too much earlier than this point, God said this about Israel through Jeremiah and Jeremiah 9. He says, They have forsaken my law that I have set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts. They've gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Whereas they had used to forsake the law of God, now they long for it. This is God's mercy to draw them back to himself. And God shows mercy through faithful leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Ezra and Nehemiah faithfully sowed the word and waited for the harvest. They prepared and they prayed for this moment. Ezra has been at this for 13 years already. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to teach it. And I think the timing of Nehemiah chapter 8 is probably no accident. It's likely the result of Nehemiah's deliberate planning. Perhaps it was his goal to finish the wall before the beginning of the seventh month. He would have known all the significant festivals that take place during this month, and perhaps he thought this is a great time to reestablish God's word in Jerusalem. So Ezra and Nehemiah, faithful teachers, sowed the word of God into the hearts of people, and God raised up a harvest so that people longed for the word themselves. In a city with newly established walls, they wanted to reestablish the law of God, the word of God in that city. So friends, here we think about this for us. Here's a sign of the Lord working in us is that you want this for yourself. You want this. That's maturity, isn't it? We say kids are mature when they finally want to eat vegetables on their own. You don't have to force them. And maybe, kids, this is another word to you. Let's say, for instance, you want to get baptized. That's wonderful. But we want to make sure that you do this because you want to do it, not because you want to please mom and dad. So how do you know if you want to do it? Well, one way to know is whether or not you want to read and listen to the Bible on your own. Do you want that? Do mom and dad have to make you do that all the time? For all of us, let's pray that we wouldn't just drag ourselves here. Let's pray that each of us would long for God and that longing would show up in a desire to read God's word. We look at this group of people in verse 2. See the diversity here. We want to see men desire God. We want to see women desire God. We want to see even kids, everybody who can understand, desire and long for the word. The people long for the word themselves. As verses 1 to 8 continue, we see the kind of reception that they give to the word. You see, they long to receive it. I don't know if you caught this. Did you see people listen to Ezra preach and read scripture for six hours? And I don't know if you caught it either. They stood up the whole time. And more important than the length of time, more important than the posture they had, was was what was in their hearts. The end of verse 3, look at it, it says there, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, if you're thinking, I I don't want you to worry about this, we're not going to use this passage to justify six-hour-long sermons. Neither are we going to use this passage to justify boring sermons. Preachers and teachers should be sensitive to the limits and ability of their listeners. The Apostle Paul might have forgotten this in Acts chapter 20. When he preached past midnight, this poor guy named Eutychus fell out a window and he died. Paul had to raise him from the dead. If you're sitting by the window, please be careful. We keep him closed. Preachers and teachers, we shouldn't do everything to entertain our hearers. But we shouldn't be bored with the Bible either. 
if I'm bored with the Bible, I can't expect you to be excited about it. And at the same time, what we say here, based on how they listened, is that this is a two-way street here. Even though we're doing all the talking up in front, this is a two-way street. All of us must be attentive to the word. We can't approach this like we approach Netflix. We can't, God does not intend for us to come to his word, turn off our minds, and just kind of veg out. Teachers and preachers, yes, we should do what we can to help us be attentive to the word, but we can't do everything. So on like a real practical level, one of the things that encourages me the most when, uh, each Sunday, when, at least when I preach, is when I see people who are connecting, who are focused, and who are tracking with the word. I get there are distractions sometimes, but it's not, it's not just for me. It's because it shows me your attention to the Lord, your attention to the Lord's word. And so, friends, this book, as we said during kids' time, this book, we believe, comes from God. How well we listen to these words shows how well we listen to God. And this assembly outside the water gates in Nehemiah chapter 8, they understood that. They received the word with worship of God. Scholar Derek Kidner says this of verses 6 to 8. He says, verses 6 to 8 should rule out any thought of the Bible being some kind of idol, as though the people worshipped a scroll. No, their adoration was for God. As they opened up their Bible, they drew near to the God of the Bible. As they read the scriptures, they yearned for the God who reveals himself in the scriptures. As they saw God reveal himself in the Bible, they responded with humble worship of the God of the Bible. We long for this book because we long for God. We must receive it like it comes from him. So the people long for the word themselves. They long to receive it and they long to understand I wonder, has this ever happened to you? You're in a conversation, maybe it's a conversation with two or three other people, and you're having a good time. Maybe you know these people fairly well, but then all of a sudden somebody brings up, hey, did you catch a game last night? But you're not a sports person. A game? What game? The Dungeons and Dragons game? I don't know. All of a sudden there's this gibberish of acronyms throwing around, PATs, PKs, WAR, OPS. You have no idea what they're saying. And so you awkwardly nod and smile and just wait for the subject to change. So here, the people who long for the word don't just long to receive it. They long to understand it. Hearing without understanding is about as useful as a conversation about sports when you don't know anything about sports. I want you to look at the setup of this assembly. The 13 men, it says, on the platform with Ezra, on the right hand and his left, in verse 4. These men may have helped Ezra handle the scrolls that the Bible would have been written on. The codex, uh, the books that we have now are a later development. The scrolls would have been bulky. These men on the platform also likely helped facilitate how the people could best hear Ezra. And then in verse 7, he tells of 13 more guys who were dispatched among the crowd. Now, some translations will say that these men among the crowd helped to translate the word. 
But it was probably wasn't necessary. Everybody likely spoke Hebrew at this point, which is the original language of the Old Testament. Instead, these guys among the crowd probably made sure that the reading was clear for everyone to hear. Ezra didn't have one of these. He didn't have a microphone. And so then he says these guys around the crowd, after they had heard, says they gave the sense so that people could understand what they're hearing. This setup here in Ezra It becomes the basis of how God's people worship over time. So we read in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, he goes to the synagogue, and what does he do? He takes up a scroll scroll of Isaiah. He reads a portion of it, and then he gives the sense. He explains it. We see in the book of Acts, what what does the early church do? They take portions of the Old Testament. They read them. They explain them. They show how they point to Jesus. It's what we want to do here today as well. We want to take portions of the Bible, read them, explain them, and see how the original meaning still lands on us today, God's people, in 2021 America. We want to start with God's word. We want all that's preached to come clearly from this foundation. We do not want to stand up here and just riff about our opinions. We want to do this because we want to understand what God has for us. So every time you come to the Bible, one of the first questions that you should ask is, did I understand what I just read? And don't hear me saying that the Bible is going to be easy to understand. But neither hear me saying that the Bible is impossible to understand. This book can be understood. And isn't that kind of God? That God has given us words that we can understand about himself, about how he saves us, and about how he calls us to live. One way God helps us to understand his word is through faithful teachers of his word. Now this setup in Nehemiah 8 is not trying to make the case that you need religious professionals in order to understand the Bible. That's not what this is saying. We believe that each believer, because they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, can understand Scripture. But God calls us to read his word in community, not in isolation. And God has called certain individuals to give themselves more fully to understand and teach his word. So we hope that as a result of this time on Sunday morning, sermons from the Bible, we hope that as a result of things like Wednesday nights when we discuss the Bible, we hope that you will be able to read and understand the Bible for yourself more and more as you listen. That's one of our prayers. So in Nehemiah 8, God revives his people. And whenever God revives his people, he always gives them a revived interest in his word. So God's people longed for the word in Nehemiah 8. Verses 9 to 12, we see how their longing turns to rejoicing. Follow me as I read verses 9 to 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, 
for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, and do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. God's people rejoice in the word. But we see here their rejoicing begins strangely, doesn't it? Begins with mourning and weeping. I've shared this story once on a Wednesday night. I don't know if I've shared it on a Sunday morning. About a little over 10 years ago, Denzel Washington starred in August Wilson's uh, play called Fences. Uh, He was on Broadway. And Denzel plays the hard-nosed, tough dad who always shows tough love to his son. And anytime he shows tough love to his son, it's meant to be serious. But the audience kept laughing. And one day Denzel just got tired of it. So at intermission of the play, he comes out and he addresses the audience. He gets serious. He says, listen, guys, this isn't funny. You're not meant to be laughing. Maybe only Denzel can do something like that. And it seems like Nehemiah, Ezra, and the other teachers say the same thing to the Israelites here. They're surprised by their reaction. The Israelites heard the law, and instead of rejoicing, they weep. The pattern is all over the Bible, though. The law cuts us to the core. God tells us how to live. And when we are honest with ourselves, we realize simply, we have not lived that way. In fact, we have refused to live that way. We've listened to ourselves instead of God. And we see the foolishness of that. We see the mess that it makes. We see the curse that comes as a result of it. Friends, you haven't really read the Bible if you've never walked away from the Bible feeling broken and cut to the core. We should be undone just by the first commandment. You think of the Ten Commandments just by the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Are you kidding me? That's our hearts all the time. And have you thought about how if that's not in place, then literally nothing of your life will be in place. You will do everything out of worship for yourself or for some other thing, not worship for the one who made you. The Bible says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. So you want to know your true state before God. How do you measure up? against how God has called you to live. This should cut you to the core. But the Bible says also that the law is our guide that leads us to Christ. Galatians 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Belief in Jesus is to realize that it should have been you who received the curse that Jesus received on the cross. That should make us weep, but it should also make us rejoice. So their rejoicing began with weeping, but observe also from this section that their rejoicing came from understanding. Why did Nehemiah tell them to stop crying? He does give them a reason. You know, it made me think of when my nephew is about to cry over something that's not a big deal. His mom will flash him a look, and he'll know what she's thinking. And she'll, she'll ask, like, hey, what do we say? I'll kind of mumble. No whining, no crying. There's no mention of that. 
Nehemiah sees them crying. He doesn't say, hey, no whining, no crying. He gives them another reason. Nehemiah says that they shouldn't weep because it was a holy day. Leviticus 23 tells us that the first day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar was to be a day of holy convocation. This was a day to celebrate, as we see here in this passage. This was a day to feast. And this feast we see is to include everybody, even people who don't have food. Nehemiah and Ezra knew there would be time to linger over sorrow over their sin. In fact, that would happen just in the next chapter in Nehemiah 9. But now was a day to celebrate God's goodness and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. Nehemiah's saying is crying on a day like this would have been like dressing up for a funeral on Christmas. It just doesn't fit the occasion. So the result comes in verse 12. The people were corrected and they went away with great rejoicing. And they did so, it says, because they understood the words that were declared to them. They went away rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Friends, are you missing out on this? God's people got joy because they understood God's word. Do you miss out on the joy that you could have? You, God's people get joy when they understand God's word. But what were the words that were declared to them? What did they understand that gave them joy? Well, we look at verse 10. Nehemiah says in verse 10, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There it is. That's what gave them joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Just slow down for a second. What does that mean? How does it work? Is this the joy that the Lord gives? Or is it the Lord's own joy? It seems like it's more the second one. I wonder, does it surprise you that God is happy? Does that surprise you? That's who he is in himself. In John chapter 17, Jesus speaks of the love and joy that he has had with God the Father from eternity past. Through Jesus, then, we receive a beautiful gift. We get to join in the love and joy that has existed eternally between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why God created us. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He created us because he's generous. We get to share in the eternal love and joy of the Trinity. But there's another aspect of God's joy. We affirm from the Bible that we stand condemned in God's sight. That he is righteously angry with our sin. At the same time, the Bible says, while we were sinners, because of the great love with which he loved us, Christ died for us. That's how we can read Zephaniah 3 verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Believer in Jesus, understand today that the almighty king and creator of the universe takes delight in you, sings over you. Do you believe that he has made you his child and think about who this message came to in nehemiah 8 this message came to a people who are on the precipice of war all the time 
People who are on the brink of being eliminated and obliterated. People who are fresh off of exile. People who are poor. And people who knew it was their fault. But they will participate in God's joy. And God takes delight in them. If that's true, then you can have strength to face anything. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Charles Wesley captures this well in his hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. The joyous life God intends for us is to live under his word. The people began with longing for the word. They continued with rejoicing over the word. And we'll wrap up and see them obey the word. Here we see from verses 13 to 18. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law, of the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So here we see the people obey the word. And let's notice first that their obedience was a deliberate obedience. You remember what happened after Jesus fed the 5,000? What the people did who got fed? They hounded Jesus. They kept following him around. I mean, they make the TMZ paparazzi look tame and respectable. And Jesus, in response, kind of calls them out. He says, basically, listen, you guys aren't here because of me. You're here because of the free food that I gave you. And so here we are in Nehemiah 8, verse 13. It's the day after what was basically this big Bible conference and major celebration. The day after that. What happens? People came back. This is what happens when you start to understand the Bible and receive it with joy. You long for more. It's like laced potato chips. You can't just have one. You've got to keep going. And they want to do more than just listen. You see, they want to study it for themselves. We see the heads of households come to study. They probably do that because they want to teach their families. We see even the guys who already taught others, priests and Levites, they came to study. Because even the guys who taught weren't beyond learning more themselves. And so the people probably came together and asked Ezra, Hey, Ezra, it's the seventh month. What does God tell us to do in this season? Well, Ezra, I'm, guys, I'm glad you asked. It's time for the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast commemorated what God did for Israel in the past. 
They reenacted the time when God sustained them when they were in the wilderness after they got out from Egypt. They lived in tents for 40 years. And God fed them and cared for them every day for 40 years. And so they lived in tents for a week. And so maybe Ezra told them this, like, this is what you've got to do in this month. And maybe the response we might imagine if we were them, he said, oh, I get it. We said we were going to live under the word and all that. But we've got to take baby steps, right? I mean, we don't have enough time to get all this together. And we don't even have houses here. Shouldn't we start with that? You know, maybe after we learn a little bit more, maybe then we'll start to take all this stuff a little more seriously. They threw out all the excuses. There's always going to be a reason to delay obeying the Lord. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. No more delays. They got the word out that they were going to celebrate this festival as God had instructed them. They made deliberate plans to ensure everything they needed was in place. And we see that this feast was unlike what Israel had seen in generations. We see that theirs was not just a deliberate obedience. Theirs was also a joyful obedience. Does that surprise you, brothers and sisters? That obedience to God can be joyful. That holiness and happiness are not mutually exclusive, but actually go together. Theirs was a joyful obedience. There wasn't this much joy at the Feast of Booths since the days of Joshua, it says. And we think about it. Joshua's generation was the first to settle back in the promised land. They were the first recipients of what the people in the wilderness had waited for. And now here was Nehemiah's generation, the first ones back in the promised land after exile. This feast would have been especially significant and especially joyful for them. It would have been like celebrating your birthday the year after you got over a fatal cancer diagnosis. You would treasure that birthday far more than others. So brothers and sisters here, in light of the joy we see, pray for God to sustain the joy of your salvation. Pray that he would keep the spark in you that, you ha- that he had and he gave you when he first brought you to faith. Pray that your deliverance from sin and death would be fresh again. This is what makes obedience joyful. We have opportunity now to pursue the life God intends for us. It is the life that continues under the word of God. And that's how this chapter closes. They stuck close to the Lord by sticking close to their Bibles. And we who stand on the other side of Christ... Our obedience to the word can be even more joyful and even more freeing. Do You see, the people in Nehemiah 8, they had the law of God, but we're going to find out that they had no lasting power to obey the law of God. But we, on the other side of Christ, have that power. We have the power to live the life that God meant for us to live. We have that power because Christ lived that life for us first. I'll let the old hymn writer William Cooper explain. I'll close with this. Listen closely. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. 
Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, my righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. What shall I do was then the word that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children and seek to long for you, rejoice in you, and obey you. Not just out of duty, but out of choice. Because you have changed our hearts. Lord Jesus, you have borne the curse of the law that we deserved. And we now have your resurrection power within us by your spirit. So that we may live like you want us to live. Help us believe this is true. Teach us and work in us, God, for your good purpose and your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.